I, didn't, I don't really understand why, but one of the great purposes of my life has been ministering to skeptics. I guess I'm surprised about that because doubts haven't really been a part of my personal struggle. Yet the majority of people that I minister to uh, have either been skeptics or are currently skeptics, and one of them is even my husband. I uh, always give credit to my husband, Pastor Eric, for teaching me how to be a more normal and loving Christian, but I also give him credit for teaching me how to relate better to people who struggle with doubts. One of the first lessons he taught me is that I should stop speaking in what he calls Christianese. Uh, it's a language who only Christians understand whenever you speak it. Uh, the second thing he taught me is that I have to be more compassionate and really listen to people and understand about their struggle with doubts. Uh, he also said that I need to stop making a face when somebody doesn't believe the things that I believe. What do you mean? You don't believe that Jesus impregnated a 14-year-old through the Holy Spirit? How dare you? Now, I also don't want to stand up here and lie to you and say that it has been an easy journey. Uh, some of the hardest years of our marriage have been whenever Eric was struggling with some of his deepest doubts. Um, but I always appreciated the way in which he dealt with those doubts. He didn't feel like he had to fake faith, faith with me. And also, he didn't stop pursuing um, God during those difficult times. Actually, I think that might, might be the reason he ended up rediscovering his faith. This experience with my husband and with some other friends of mine who, mine who struggle with uh, skepticism uh, has also helped me deconstruct my preconceived notions about uh, people who are skeptics. I used to assume that skeptics are just rebellious. I also used to assume that skeptics are just too caught up in the things of this world or too selfish to really believe in the message of the gospel. But the biggest assumption that I made was that it is easy to believe. And I guess I just assumed that because I was brought up in the church from the time I was born. And I think I received one of the gifts of the Spirit, which is the gift of faith, that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, but I also assumed that other people received the same gift. Most people received the same gift. And that's not the case. Uh, not everybody finds it easy to believe like I did. Um, and I think it is a very big assumption I used to make because it's very difficult to go from the desire that sometimes we have to discover God, and sometimes that's usually when we're going through a hard time, to go into faith, and then to going from faith to obeying the will of God. Those are very hard steps to take. So today we're studying one of the most famous doubters, uh, the Apostle Thomas. And we're going to be reading from John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Uh, please follow along on the screen, or you have it also in your handout that you were given. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, 
peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. During my early years, I also used to think that Thomas just showed up to ruin the resurrection party the disciples were having. Yay, Jesus, welcome back to earth. It was true. And there he comes with some seriously bizarre demands, ruining the party. He says, unless I place my finger inside the wounds, I will never believe. Thomas, you're so weird. Didn't Jesus suffer enough that now you have to pierce him all over again with your dirty hands? How dare you? You can see how Thomas robs us all the wrong way. He's he's entitled in some ways. But if we step back from our emotion, from the emotion he evokes by the things that he says, uh, we kind of realize that he's bringing a pretty valid concern. Because the resurrection was a unique event in human history. It's something that had never happened before and that will never happen again. So I'm sure Thomas was having trouble processing that in his mind. Jesus had brought some people back from the dead before. In in Jewish culture, that was kind of a known fact that some people had been resuscitated. I mean, he brought back his good friend Lazarus. He brought back uh, Jairus' daughter. He brought back the widow's son. But whenever he resuscitated them, he brought them back into their former bodies, right? I had trouble finding a picture of Lazarus where he didn't look like the walking dead because he had already been dead for three whole days before Jesus brought him back. I'm sure he was like, thank you, Jesus. I don't look any different. I'm sure he recovered. But, you know, he, the other thing that we need to remember about those resuscitations is that these people also died again at some point in time, or that would be really weird if Lazarus and all of those people Jesus resuscitated were still here with us today. So the resurrection is different, and we get clues from Scripture as well. Well, um, one of the first clues that we get is that the people people that Jesus comes into contact with first do not recognize him. Obviously, there's something different about him. And only after they've spoken for a while, do they recognize him and say, oh, my Lord, you're, you're here? And the second clue that we get is that Jesus has this ability to come through the walls or doors of locked rooms. That's weird, right? Also, Jesus has the ability to come in and uh, like, to appear and disappear at will. Sometimes he appears to some disciples in point A, and then he goes to point C. I mean, he, he appears and disappears. And the last clue that we get is that he never dies again. He actually ascends into heaven in the presence of the disciples. And we hear about that whenever he gives them the Great Commission. So I can understand why Thomas's skepticism goes into high gear whenever the other disciple says, well, Jesus showed up and we were having a great time. I'm sure that he was doubting that. He did not believe them. Because this is a unique event. It's hard to explain. 
I guess if the Gospels would have introduced Thomas as a cantankerous and rebellious disciple, I would not, we would not be studying him today. We would just kind of discard him as the angry, doubtful disciple. But instead, Thomas teaches us a huge lesson. He teaches us that not everybody goes from faith to obedience, but that some of us go from obedience into faith. He is obviously following Jesus for a reason. He's not as wild and as fun and extroverted as Peter. He is not as smart as Matthew. He is not as loving as John. But he's there. He's present. He, for the most part, demonstrates to us that he is loyal to Jesus. He's quietly following Jesus. And I would say he's the kind of person that actually showed up even when he didn't feel like it or even when he was struggling with doubts. One of the times that John mentions Thomas points to that very thing. In John 14, the disciples and Jesus are having a conversation. And Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to leave you for a while because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back for you. I'm sure all of the disciples were thinking, well, I wonder where he's going. But none of them dare say anything except for Thomas. Thomas says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? Pretty valid question. And Jesus never gives a direct answer. Jesus had to teach the disciples so many different lessons, and he chooses to teach them the lesson, the lesson about being uh, the way to the Father. And if you know the Father, you know him. If you have seen the Father, you have seen uh, if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. He goes into this whole different lesson to answer Thomas's concern. And I'm sure Thomas was still sitting there thinking, thank you, Jesus, that was a great lesson about you being the way to the Father, but I still don't know where you're going, and I don't know where we're, we're supposed to be going with you. It was, it was hard to be a disciple. The second time that John mentions Thomas, we learn about the loyalty and courage of this disciple. The other disciples basically are begging Jesus to not go back to Judea. Jesus wants to go back to Judea because he had heard about his good friend's death. Lazarus is dead, and he wants to go back there. As we learned last week, he probably wanted to go and console Martha and Mary or Bethany. So he decides that he's heading back there, and the disciples are begging him, Jesus, people want to kill you in Judea. Let's not head back there. Guess who is the only one? who says we should go, Thomas. And this is what he says in chapter 14. Let us all go that we may die with him. Thomas might not really know what he's talking about, the implications of what he's saying, but he gives us a very good glimpse of what he's thinking in his mind. So remember that people don't just offer to die for somebody they don't care about or they don't know. Thomas understands that following Jesus is definitely the way. And he definitely understands that there's going to be a cost of following Jesus. He knows the cost of discipleship. I also know some people today, even in our own congregation, who are very much like Thomas, obedient to the core. 
These are the kind of people that are always at church, that show up for everything. They lead in so many different capacities for many years. They attend church retreats. They have graduated children and sometimes even grandchildren from Sunday school, obedient to the core, because they understand that there's something fundamentally true and fundamentally good about Jesus. I've seen some of these people become consumed by their doubts, and they eventually end up leaving the church. Because as much as they know there's something true of, about it, they don't give their hearts to Jesus. But then I also meet another group of people who are obedient to the core, and that they ask Jesus for faith, and Jesus grants them that faith. Then their obedience turns into passion for the gospel, and their lives are transformed because Jesus is the Lord of their hearts. The resurrection encounter does this for Thomas. It completely transforms him from the inside out. Now, there are people in two different camps. There is a camp in which people think that Thomas actually dared to touch the wounds, violating the sacredness of Jesus' resurrected body. That they believe that he actually took Jesus on that invitation and they, he went ahead and touched him. You know, regardless, the results are the same. Jesus, like Thomas recovered his faith. But I doubt that was the case because of the interaction that Jesus has with Mary whenever she runs to the tomb to find him and they have this conversation. She discovers it's Jesus. She wants to hug him and Jesus says, don't hold on to me because I have not yet gone to the Father. He's basically refusing to be touched by Mary. And if he's refusing to be touched by Mary, who's probably a lot cleaner than Thomas, I don't think that he wanted Thomas to do that. So did Thomas really dare touch him? Or did Thomas really need to touch Jesus in order to believe? That's the question that we're asking today. Jesus definitely invites him to. Jesus says, put your hands in my wounds. But did Thomas really need to do such a distasteful thing to believe? I think that all Thomas needed to do is to really witness, to be in the presence of Jesus, to surrender to him. Let's revisit the passage. It says, Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, not because you have touched me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What is even more incredible about this story is the way in which Jesus deals with Thomas. What he did for Thomas shows the kind of savior that we love and that we worship. I think he, Jesus could have easily given up on Thomas, especially when his doubts reached that kind of disrespectful level. Jesus could have just said, I'm done with Thomas. But what did Jesus do? He decides to visit the disciples eight days later all over again because I'm sure he has heard that Thomas still has doubts. 
So he goes out of his ways to, and goes through, through the walls or the door of a locked room and invites Thomas to pierce him all over again with his dirty hands. If that's what it will take for Thomas to follow him, go ahead, do it, Thomas. Pierce me all over again. I think that's the kind of Savior that we worship, that will go to great lengths to find us wherever we are. One of the reasons this good old Pentecostal lady decided to become a Methodist is because when I first came to this country, I was basically adopted by a Methodist church. Southwest United Methodist Church, they, they became my, my adopted family. They sent me to school. They took care of me. They were incredible in every way. And of course, as any good, you know, recipient of that kind of love and generosity, I started finding out about the Methodist Church, and I read and read and read about John Wesley, the founder of the, of the Methodist Church. Guys, he is a very cool guy. He is amazing. I said, I can definitely live Pentecostalism for this. I became a Methodist. And the reason I admire him is because he's another example of a person who goes from obedience into faith. He's so honest about his doubts and his struggles in his diary. Yes, I've read all his diary. So it was refreshing for me who came from a tradition where doubts are shunned and are uh, seen as taboo, to find a founder like this of a church that has impacted millions around the world. And what we're about to read is so relevant to our discussion today. So let's start with February 1st, 1738. He wrote this concerning the public offices of religion, all the meetings that he had to attend when he became a preacher. He confessed. I myself thus attended these meetings for many years, and yet I am conscious to myself that during that whole time I had no more of the love of God than a stone. Saturday, March 4, 1738. I found my brother at Oxford recovering from pleurisy, and with him Peter Baller, who was a Moravian bishop, by whom in the hand of the great God I was on Sunday the 5th, clearly convinced of unbelief, of the want of that faith whereby alone we are saved. Immediately it struck into my mind, leave of preaching. How can you preach to others who have not faith yourself? I asked Baller whether he thought I should leave it off or not. He answered, by no means. I asked, but what can I preach? He said, preach faith until you have it, and then, because you have it, you will preach faith. Whew, reading people's diaries is a lot of fun. March 24, 1738. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me 
that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I began to pray with all my might for those who had in a more special manner despitefully used me to pers and persecuted me. I then testified openly to all there what I know, what I now first felt in my heart. But what can I say? I'm glad Wesley obeyed to his calling, even though his faith was literally crumbling down. I'm glad he didn't give up. I'm glad he went on preaching, starting churches, because if it wasn't for people who have gone from obedience to faith, like John Wesley, we wouldn't be here today. What inspired a lot of the premises of this story had to do with the founder of Methodism in the 1700s. It's powerful. I'm also glad that Thomas had the courage to stick around even when he had so many doubts about the resurrection. I'm glad that he witnessed the beauty of the resurrected Jesus. And I'm glad that he got to experience the lengths to which, to, to which Jesus, was, Jesus was willing to go in order to find him and save him. Little is known about Thomas from canonical texts, post-resurrection, but he's recognized by a lot of really reliable voices, by bishops even, that, uh, that he was the one who spread the gospel to India. A lot of people call him the, the first pope of the East. He's also known to have been uh, martyred in India because he was uh, upsetting local uh, priests who didn't like him preaching about Jesus to their crowds. The non-canonical Gospel of Thomas also has accounts of Jesus himself telling Thomas that he needed to go and spread the Gospel to the East and that, of course, Thomas didn't like that at all, but that regardless of his dislike of his assignment, what do you think he'd, he'd do? He obeyed at the risk of his own life. The truth is that Jesus didn't fail Thomas. Di Jesus didn't fail Wesley. Jesus has never, ever failed me, and I know that Jesus will not fail you. If what you seek is faith, Ask, and you will receive. Ask, and he will grant it to you. All I think that we need, all we need is really an invitation from our hearts. We need to invite Jesus to come and take over. And you can even maybe ask for something as radical as what Thomas asked. And I'm sure that Jesus will still go through locked rooms to find you and to grant you the faith that you long for. But all that we need to do is to ask. So I pray that if you find yourself at a place of doubts, don't let those doubts turn into cynicism today, but let the Spirit of God come and show you the truth that is in Jesus. Let's do that right now together as we pray. I thank you so much, Jesus, for your love, for your mercy, for being the kind of Savior that you are, that will do whatever it takes to find us, that will do whatever we ask 
as signs that you are real and ever-present in our lives. I thank you for your faithfulness and for your love, and I know that there are hearts in this room today that are longing for you. So we invite you in our hearts. We invite you to take over and to show us that you are the way, the truth, and the life. That we will not find the satisfaction that we're seeking in anything else other than you. You're the beginning and the end. And we give you praise for your goodness and for your mercy and for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.